0: Friends, I'm gonna uh, push us just a little bit ahead. I know we're running a little short on time here, uh, and there are young kids in the room. And, you know, I belong to a multi-ethnic, multicultural church. So we know that we have different understandings of time as people from different ethnicities and cultures. And so I just want to be attentive to those who are in the room. My name name's Jonathan Cham. Uh, I graduated in the class of 2009. Um, so from 2005 to 2009, I was a student here on campus. Um, and I was pretty involved uh, with InterVarsity, um, you know, here on campus, uh, I've heard about the university. in fact, university was one of the reasons that I came to William & Mary. And so, as a student here, um, as somebody who was in yes, there we go, that's, that's the money shot that we were looking for. Uh, so, so, you know, I, like, like many of you, I started out in one major, ended up in another, uh, graduated with a final change to economics and international relations. Yeah, I uh, ended up working here at the college at ADATA, Data, the Institute for Theory and Practice of <laughs> International Relations. So I ended up, you know, back then things were pretty loose, so I basically got to write my own job description. Um, and part of that was I just want to go to a bunch of cool places uh, with my freshman roommate. So me and Scott traveled around the world, knocked on doors with different foreign governments asking about their international development data. We weren't really that successful, but we made a lot of people laugh. Um, so that, that worked out In 2009, um, after I graduated and was doing this work, I was thinking, you know, I'd love to be involved in something where I'm understanding where my faith intersects more deeply and where I'm on the ground in relationship with people. And so I went back to the Urbana Missions Conference and there I connected with a group called Haiti Partners. About 14 days later, uh, a 7.1 on the Richter scale earthquake hit the country of Haiti and over 150,000 people died. Uh, I connected again with Haiti partners, traveled down there a few months later, uh, began a relationship with folks there, and ended up moving to Florida, traveling back and forth to Haiti for the next several years. And so, as a part of my work uh, with Haiti partners, I helped lead a program called Blankist Scholars, and we work with pastors and church leaders from across the country of Haiti, creating a, a scholarship program that allowed young leaders to get a full scholarship to go to a Haitian seminary. And then apprentice in the work that we did To mobilize the church for justice and deepen in faith and spiritual formation. So, we would mobilize churches around ancient practices of the church, like Lectio Divina, or examining prayer, around Bible study and leadership development, as well as human trafficking, women's rights, and urban environmental issues. We organized churches around women's leadership in the church, in a country where over 50% of women experience sexual assault or domestic abuse, where so many positions of leadership are closed to women. We helped to bring uh, women's enrollment in the three three top Haitian seminaries up by over 100%. And so we were engaged in this work, but I was looking for a community that I could be a part of back here in the States that understood the issues that we were engaged with in Haiti. So I, I moved from Florida, continued working, doing the work in Haiti, spending about 50% of the year in Haiti, 50% of the year in the States, and I moved back to my hometown of Richmond, Virginia. And there I joined a church called East End Fellowship, and at East End Fellowship what I found was a community of believers who were seeking the joy and justice of their neighborhood, the east end of Richmond, uh, where over 80% of the population lives in poverty, and so we face so many challenges of educational inequality, affordable housing, uh, concentrated poverty. And so there, as a part of a multi-ethnic, diverse congregation, learning how to live out these issues that I was working on in Haiti at home here in the States. Well, that journey continued for me in a vocational sense up until last year, 2016, splitting my time between the United States and Haiti. But in 2015, I got married. I'll tell you more about that later. In 2016, I began to realize this life really isn't all that sustainable for myself or for my marriage. And so I began to explore what kind of transition that looked like. And so earlier this year, I joined an organization called CHAP, Church Hill Activities and Tutoring that has served the east end of, Virginia, of Richmond, Virginia for 15 years. Some of you might know the founder, Percy Strickland, he interned with InterVarsity here at William Mary under Marty's tutelage. He moved to Richmond, became a campus staff minister at the University of Richmond. We moved into our neighborhood 15 years ago. Nobody, nobody who had the option would move into our neighborhood. But they moved in trying to figure out what does it mean to be a neighbor in this place that our city has tried to avoid and erase. And so they gathered groups of kids who wanted to get to know them on their course, and asked, what do you you guys want to do together? How do you guys want to organize our time? And they're like, well, we really need two things. We need after-school tutoring with our homework, and we just want to do fun activities. So that's how Churchill activities and tutoring was born. Today we have over a hundred students in our after school programming. Monday and Tuesday doing tutoring. On Wednesdays, life enrichment classes. On Friday nights, we have a youth group where over 45 kids from public housing are coming every other week. Unprompted, their parents don't make them show up, their guardians don't make them show up, but they come because it's a safe place away from violence, away from drugs, away from crime, and a place where they can build community and begin to walk with the Lord. We have a, a high school that has now over 41 graduates to date. Four years ago, we started a preschool and a daycare. The diverse preschool and a daycare for a changing neighborhood. As we undergo gentrification, as more and more families move in to be a part of the work that's going on, we're trying to reach kids at early childhood. We have a workforce development program that started out as a garage. Uh, older men apprenticing with younger men on woodworking, on carpentry that we added the screen printing shop, And just this past Thursday, we had the grand opening of our cafe, the Front Porch Cafe. It's going to be a jobs training lab for young people and young adults. And it's going to be a place where the entire community can come together uh, to fellowship together, to eat together in a neighborhood that is changing and is in some ways more divided than ever. Our hope is that the Front Porch Cafe can bring our community together as we share the gospel in both word and deed. So like I said, I, I got married in, uh, in 2015. My wife Katie and I, we met here at William & Mary. We met through InterVarsity. We, we were those people, um, some of you might be in this room, actually. We were those people who all of our friends would say to us, you guys really should date. You guys are really perfect for each other. And we said, no, <laughs> that's a lie. <laughs> right? No, we dated other people. We, we, we furiously tried to avoid this outcome. We gradually weren't dating each other. I moved to Florida, Katie moved to Ohio. She uh, worked as a congregation-based community organizer. We, uh, I moved back to Richmond at the beginning of 2012. Katie had moved to Washington, D.C. We stayed in touch. And I was like, ah, maybe they were right. <laughs> Some of you are in this room and you were right. And um, we're guys, you guys, one, said what she said, two, you haven't loved it in our faces that you are white, because I, I, I would have not have been nearly that big man. So we got married in 2015, we share our life together in Richmond, um, and, 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 you know, we're both involved in our church, involved in our community, we mentor a young woman from chat named Tatiana, who's about to graduate high school.
1: And so, you know, as I was
0: reflecting on my journey to this point, as I was thinking about the journeys... Uh, that a lot of you are on, whether you're students uh, or just returning alumni, some of those alumni who are in the room that that I had the chance to know in in college and some of you who who went on before us. You know, I was thinking about, um, yeah, the the arc that we're on, the journey that we're on, and really the story that we're living out. For many of us, the story that we're living out, maybe it looks different than the story that we thought we would be living out. For some of it, for some of us, uh, it's right in line with where we thought we would be. But no matter where we are, no matter whether whether we're looking into that season, the next season with trepidation, whether we're thinking about what is this story going to look like, all of us, we locate ourselves in different narratives. And and the reality is is that for most of us, our narratives are are pretty similar. And and that's because our culture, our society, has just a few shared stories that we all tell each other. It's It's been the same way in every culture in every society in human history. And even though today we live in a time of incredible creativity and technological change, the reality is that so many of the stories we tell each other or tell about ourselves are just variations on a theme. Sometimes we call them remakes or reboots. Tonight I'm gonna to say that they're kind of reenactments with minor changes. They remind us of our core values, our main ideas, the deep-seated beliefs that we have about ourselves, and that Our age has. They remind us of where we've been and keep our eyes fixed on where we're going. So Hollywood, movies and TV in our day and age are kind of a representation of this. So I'll walk you through just a couple quick examples. So let's talk about a classic story of good versus evil. There's a few good guys. They're looking for redemption. They've lost their way. They're fighting against all odds to save a group of helpless villagers. And in the process, they show the villagers that the courage is in them all along. Well, first we have a movie called Seventh Samurai, directed by Akira Kurosawa in 1954. It's one of the greatest films of all time. You've probably seen it. You've taken a film studies class here. Well, a few years later, some guy in Hollywood says, hey, that's a great story. We're going to take it out of feudal Japan. we're going to update it a little bit. We're going to put it in the Old West, fill it with some leading men of the day, old writers, Steve McQueen, James Coburn. We're going to have a movie called The Magnificent Seventh. Okay. About four years later, somebody else sitting around being like, hey, let's run that play again. Let's update it one more time. Let's get Denzel, let's get a diverse cast. You get Denzel's version of the Magnificent 7 that just came out about a year and a half ago. Well, somewhere along the way, in between the first Magnificent 7 and Denzel's version, somebody was sitting around and said, Hey, you know what would be really cool? What if we took Magnificent 7 and we made it about animated bugs? <laughs> Guys, that's the same movie. It's the same story. Okay, well, let's talk about TV. Uh, you know, about 30 some years ago, there was a TV show called Cheers. A um, group of people who came together at, at a shared place, a bar, uh, building community together. A lot of them uh, strained relationships with their families, strained relationships with their jobs. But this, this bar was a place of refuge for them. And a new kind of community, a family born out of this location. Well, a few years later, somebody was like, let's try that again. And so we had a TV show called Friends. They met at a coffee shop in New York. Well, a few years later, they tried it again, and it was a show, oh, How I Met Your Mother. Again, these these shows, these themes, they they keep cropping up over and over and over again. They're just reenactments. The stories of our age that we tell each other and the places that we locate ourselves in. That's the power of these familiar stories. They ground us, they shape us, and so, what happens is when we retell a familiar story, but we make a change, we retell it in a surprising way, we sit up and take notes. See, every now and then we get a movie like Shrek. And so, yeah, it, it's funny. And, and part of the reason why they beat that concept to death, and like, good lord, like five sequels, was that they changed the story. Now the ogre wasn't the villain, he was the hero. Or maybe you get a movie like Frozen. And if you're not a parent who lost their mind on the 50th rewatching, watching and the 50th reseeing of that dang song, you notice that it's a story that we all thought is about the power of romantic love, and we've seen that over and over and over again in fairy tales. But it's subverted its own genre, and it turns out to be about the power of love between sisters. Well, the reality is the scripture is no different. There are stories that are reenacted over and over again throughout scripture. But there are also stories that are rewritten. There are stories that are rewritten. It takes the context and the culture in which those people are lived, and it turns it upside down on its head. The ending is rewritten. And our text tonight is no different. In Luke 22, we see Jesus' name acting one of the oldest and richest stories of human history. The story of the Passover, the story of liberation of the children of Israel from their slavery and oppression. If you grew up in church you know the story, the people of Israel are caught in deep oppression in Egypt. God has sent a servant Moses to free them. He has sent plague after plague to convince Pharaoh that he needs to let these people go. But Pharaoh hardens his heart. He will not relent. He plunges his people deeper into oppression. So God sends a final plague, an angel of death that takes the firstborn of every Egyptian family. He gives Moses a command to enact this feast of Passover, take an innocent, spotless lamb, kill it, spread the blood over the frame, and the angel of death will pass over. And so this meal becomes the story that the Jewish people have at the climax of every year. Year after year after year, they reenact this story again and again, passing it down through generation after generation. In times of triumph and in times of oppression, in famine, in wealth, this feast of Passover is celebrated again and again. And so in Luke 22, Jesus is sitting with his disciples. And he says, we're going to reenact this meal. But when he does it, he does something unexpected. And really, if if we know Jesus, that's what we should expect. We should expect Jesus to do the unexpected. He rewrites the ending the story. In fact, he rewrites the ending of several stories. As he enacts this meal, he rewrites two stories in particular that we're going to look at the story of the world that they were living in, and the individual story of one of the disciples that was there. So if you have your, your scripture, turn with me, and, I, and I'll put it up here on the slide. We're starting in verse 14, Luke 22. Verse 14. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles were at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed. But woe to that man who betrays him. And then a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be greatest. Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles worded over them. And those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials and I confer on you a kingdom just as my father conferred one on me so that you may eat and drink at my table in the kingdom and sit on the thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sip all of you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and the death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know. In this passage, we see Jesus rewriting writing two stories. The story of the world that they live in, and the story of an individual. First, the story of the world. He starts by naming the rules and authority that govern this world and are so familiar to his disciples. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them. See, the story of the world he enacts again and again. Those with power dominate those who are powerless. In the top-down Roman Empire, the world where they lived, the elites of society, they had so much power, they got to define what was good for other people. And so that's what Jesus is saying. They said they called themselves benefactors. That's a Greek word. It means those who do good. They got to define what was good and what was evil, to choose who had rights and who didn't, who had dignity and who had privilege to be counted as a human being. And so the top-down Roman Empire was filled with tyranny, with oppression and injustice. Endless wars, infanticide, a culture saturated in sexual assault and a collective of the poor. Does this begin to sound familiar to you? But Jesus rewrites the story. But you are not to be like that. He said the greatest among you should be like the youngest. And the one who rules like the one who serves. He says later, you are those who sit by me and trust and I confer on you like kingdom." This is my father has conferred one on me. And so, Jesus, in this passage, in this rewriting of the story of his world, he is replacing the top down empire with an upside down kingdom. And those who would lead this kingdom are no longer the benefactors of society, giving out rights and privileges wherever they see fit. Now they're the servants of society. And the rights and privileges that they might have are now used to serve the ones who have had their God-given dignity stripped away. He is ultimately restoring the very beginning of what God had intended for all creation, all of humanity in Genesis, that all would be seen as made in the image of God, with inherent dignity, value, purpose, and worth, no matter their race or class, their ethnicity, their gender. And so the early church lives out this truth, That all are created in God's image. And those that have power and opportunity and responsibility in the early church, they begin to use it to restore that image in those who have denied it. A revolution is unleashed that shook the ancient world. As Rodney Stark writes so carefully in his book, The Rise of Christianity, it starts with the family, the basic building block of society. It's turned upside down. See, when you read Paul's letters, you find at the end of them, at the end of Galatians, at the end of Ephesians, you find these instructions. And when we read these instructions from the family, we see that they're very clearly based off the household codes that govern society at that time, the Greek and the Roman codes. See, in those codes, the paterfamilias, the man of the house. He's never told that there's a right or a wrong way to treat anybody else. Everybody gets told, this is how you're supposed to treat the father. This is how you're supposed to treat the father, family, the, the women, the children, the slaves. The father, he has no responsibilities or duties. But in Paul's letters, husbands are told to love their wives like Christ loves the church. To love their wives like they love their own bodies. Masters are told to treat their slaves as they would treat their brothers. Relationships of oppression that denied the image of God are turning into relationships of mutuality and equality that restore the image. And so thus, a top-down empire that permeates every relationship is rewritten into an upside-down kingdom, and everything is changed. See, as the kingdom spreads, women are empowered and rise into positions of leadership. We read later in Acts about Priscilla, the who taught uh, the Apostle Apollos, who may have written the book of Hebrews, we're told about Lydia, the businesswoman, who convenes the church in Philippi. Junia, who's noted as a, noted among the apostles. And again and again, in the early church, we see Christians come together from any vocation, from every ethnic group, from every social class, in ways that break the boundaries that have been established by this top-down empire. In the church of Antioch, we see the names of the leaders of this very first church plant of the early church. We see Greek and Hebrew names. We see leaders from noble families and peasants from poor families. We see Europeans and Africans, dark and light skinned, leading the church together. And so this revolution that is unleashed sweeps across the empire. And so, when in the second and third centuries, plagues and epidemics sweep through the Roman Empire and into the cities of the empire, those with wealth and privilege, pagans and atheists, they flee the cities, but Christians stay. Guaranteed of their eternal hope and their eternal home, they care for the sick and the needy. And this leads to the establishment of the institution that we know today as the hospital. The top-down empire is reshaped and rewritten by the upside-down kingdom. So what does this mean for us here today? Some of us are students preparing to launch in the next step beyond graduation. We're trying to figure out what our major or our course of study will be. Some of us are alumni at various stages of life. Maybe early on, still figuring out the shape of our career. Maybe trying to figure out the challenges of community, relationships, or marriage. Maybe for the first time, maybe for the tenth time. Trying to figure out what it means to do all this when we're being overwhelmed by the insatiable needs of that eight-pound human being who never sleeps. And then they start talking, and then they start walking, and then they never ever stop eating. <laughs> Well, friends, no matter where we are, we're called into this revolution, into this upside-down kingdom that Jesus began. And though our time looks very different than the time of Jesus, our world continues to reenact the same principles in power and domination, building top-down empires in every sphere in subtle and obvious ways. But Jesus is still at work rewriting the story of this world. As Abraham Kuyper put it, there is not a square inch in creation— over the whole domain of our human existence, which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry mine. And he's reclaiming this creation from the bottom up, establishing his upside-down kingdom. Based on what we've seen here in this passage and in the history of the early church, let me just humbly and briefly suggest four ways in which we can live in this upside-down kingdom. First, let me suggest that, that we need to radically commit. To the local church. You see, in an age of radical individualism accelerated by the power of free market and technology, where we can buy our clothes made to order, we can have our custom meals delivered to our door, we have our curated news feeds and Twitter feeds deliver us exactly the information we want when we want it. In this age, maybe more than any other age, we have to reject consumerism in our faith and exchange it for the bonds of commitment. See, the early Christians, they knew this in a radical way. The church was not just a service that they consumed on one day a week. They gathered daily in the temple courts to hear teaching and to worship. They gathered in homes across their cities for fellowship. They spread out across their communities to serve the sick and the vulnerable. And so we are called, not just to the church that has a critical mass of the demographic that we do community with, not just for the church that has the worship that touches us. Not just for the church that has the preaching that reaches our minds. Now, none of those things are wrong to pursue or to weigh as we discern where we are called. But friends, you and I, we are not consumers of the church. We are disciples and servants of the church. And so often the question that we ask ourselves about our local body is, where can I be fed? But we also have to question just as much, where can I serve? Look, I know this is hard. Uh, it takes it time to figure it out, and sometimes we end one season and have to move into another and try to figure it out again. My circumstances change. I've gone from fundamentalist churches to mega churches to mainline churches to church plants. Now, today, I'm a part of a church that comes closer to my ideal than anything I've ever encountered and probably anything I'm ever going to encounter again. But it's a church that is made up of deeply flawed people, and so it is itself deeply flawed but it's a place where I can serve, where I can serve and be fed and be held accountable. There's no perfect church that can meet all of your needs, but there's at least one, and there might be many, that need you to serve it. Next, we have to think about how we're going to embody God's plan for diversity and reconciliation. And I know that you've already heard about this this semester, as we've seen the early church pressed into the difficult and painful work of reconciliation to become a multi-ethnic, multinational, multicultural people of God. And friends, this was just as hard for them as it's for us today. In nearly every letter of Paul, he has to write to the churches that he's serving and talk to them once again about their ethnic divisions. Peter has to have, Paul has to have a public confrontation with Peter over his racism. But today, as it was then, there is so much at stake. The very witness of our church in the world. The dehumanization of people all around the world based on the color of their skin or the letters in their name. And so in your ministry spaces in your church, you can begin by asking yourself this. Who is missing from our community? Who doesn't have a seat at the table? No matter where you are, no matter what kind of community you're a part of, I guarantee you there is a group of people missing. Whether by race or by class or by vocation there is a group of people that is missing and doesn't have a voice or a seat at the table. A few months ago, I had had the privilege to help convene a conference through a group in Richmond called Erebon, a conference called Race, Class, and the Kingdom of God. In the coming months, they're gonna be coming out with a video curriculum, a small group curriculum that can convene real, pastoral, honest, and authentic discussions around the challenges of crossing cultures here in our own towns and cities. So I encourage you to look to that as it comes forward. Third thing, I'm going to zoom through this real quick. The third thing that we have to do is find the redemptive edge of your calling and your vocation. Find the redemptive edge. And what do I mean by that? First, I mean that that every single vocation that we have, whether it's the arts or business, whether it's teaching or professional ministry, these things are all ordained by God because work has been ordained by God. None of them is better than the other. And so reject that lie that to serve God well, you have to go into a professional sphere of ministry. But in every vocation, in every line of work, there is an edge where redemption and restoration must begin. And so ask yourself who is being left behind? Who is being exploited in my line of work? You see, we need business leaders. Who don't reject the power of free markets, but who leverage the power of the market to create goods and services, provide livelihoods, and to do it in a way that treats their workers with dignity and respect. We need artists who provoke the imagination and simulate the senses. We need entrepreneurs who are going to push the bounds of what's possible. We need administrators and accountants who are going to bring order to the chaos that those entrepreneurs have created. We need to figure out out in every vocation that we're going to, where's the redemptive edge? Who is being left behind? Who is being exploited? Who suffers when other people profit? And how do we address that? And so I want to give you two quick resources to address that. Two books that you can turn to. One is called Kingdom Calling: Vocational Stewardship for the Common Good by Amy Sherman, and in it she shares a framework for how we are to think about work and calling. And then she provides case study after case study of people who have dropped into their vocation to figure out where that redemptive edge is. And by Tim Keller, a book called Every Good Endeavor, he brings together all the historic streams of how we've thought about faith and work and applies it to this day and age. And finally, just one more practice, one more challenge, one more suggestion. We need to learn how to be a faithful presence in our community. You see, in our communities, in every community, in every city and town, there are places that we want to avoid. There are places and blocks that we don't want to walk down. There are places that we want to erase the history and replace it with something new and say that we redeveloped it when really we just wiped out the people who were living there before. In my neighborhood, the church in the East End, we have uh, some, uh, some James Beard semi-finalist, award-winning restaurants, places that get written up in the New York Times style section. And then we have one um, of the densest tracts of poverty on the East Coast. Over 5,000 men, women, and children who live in public housing. Over 50% of them are children. Some of the worst schools in the state of Virginia, and some of the wealthiest people in the state of Virginia. And all of that can be mashed together in a single zip code. And for some people, our neighborhood is this place of amazing creativity and culinary arts, and for some people, it's a place of pain and generational poverty and chaos. And so what we have to do is we have to learn how to be a faithful presence even on the micro level, block block by block, what are the places that are being avoided? What are the places that are being erased? What are the places that are being torn down as if nobody ever lived there before and nobody had a story? How do we ask these questions and then how do we be a faithful presence in those places? The early Christians, they knew this. When the plagues and the epidemic swept through their city stay behind. What would our country look like today if in the 50s, and in the 60s, and in the 70s, when the inner cities began to fall into decay, when when our urban policies, no matter the best intentions, led to the concentration of poverty? You see, in my community, there are over 50 congregations, over 50 churches, houses of worship. Of those 50 churches, not a single pastor lives in our neighborhood. They all lacked when the neighborhood changed. And now maybe they'll come back, but they're not coming back for the people who stayed in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s, who watched an entire generation melt away when crack hit the streets. They're coming back for the people who are moving in. And so how do we, this is the tension that we live into. This is the tension, frankly, that we as a community are failing at. How do we be a faithful presence in this time and place where worlds are colliding. Two quick resources that can help us. There's two books that are being published by University Press that have just come out. One is called The Power of Proximity, and the second is called The Economics of Neighborly Love. Two books coming a little bit from opposite ends of the political spectrum, one from the left and one more from the right, but but these give us perspective and resource on how to live into these challenges. As you think about where you are going to live And where are you going to invest? Will you just follow and reenact the script that the world has for us? To find that white picket fence. To find that suburban living situation. And I'm not saying that that's not where God has called you. That might be exactly where God has called you. But are you going to ask the question, God, where are you calling me? Because if you don't have the courage to follow your calling, you will simply become captive to our dominant culture. Well, maybe all of this is overwhelming to Maybe as a student you're already looking at this revolution of upside-down kingdom and you're thinking, eh, I'm really not sure that I could do this. Maybe you're looking at it as an alum and you're thinking, well, i kind of already failed at this. Or maybe you're thinking, this is just completely unrealistic. I'm barely holding it together in my job, in my relationship, in my marriage, with my kids. But here's the good news. In this passage, Jesus isn't just rewriting the story of the world. In it, he's also you writing the story of an individual. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you, all of you, as wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. See, Simon Peter, he was the strongest of the second, or that's how he thought about himself. He was the first to say, Jesus, yes, you are the Messiah, you are the one that God has sent. He would be the first to go forward. He would sit at the transfiguration and see Jesus with Elijah and with Moses. He would be witness to all these things. Simon Peter would later go on and be the rock upon which Jesus would build the church. But in this moment, the most crucial moment, the most crucial night of Jesus' life, he fails. He falls. He turns away. He runs. And he does. He denies Jesus three times. And friends, this will not be the last time that Peter fails. He's going to go on. And friends, let's be clear. If Simon Peter lived in this time and place, there's a very good chance he would have been marching with those thousands of people carrying torches in Charlottesville just two months ago. Peter was a rabid ethnic supremacist. He believed completely in the supremacy of Israel. He was ready to make Israel great again. Jesus had to shock him into this journey. He had to send vision after vision. Paul had to confront him in public, in front of the church, about his racism. He would fail again and again and again. But this is the person Jesus says, you are the rock upon which I'm going to build my church. This is the one whom Jesus says, when you have turned back, strengthen your brother. See, what was true for Peter then can be true for us today, no matter where we are, no matter where we find ourselves, in our addiction, or our pain, in our depression, in our sin, and depravity, in the failures that we carry with us through life, in all of the ways that we have not lived into the upside-down kingdom that God has proclaimed, we can always turn back. And God is always ready to use us again to strengthen our brothers and our sisters. Ultimately, it's not about where you are today, but it is the direction on where you're going. Will you turn again? No matter how many times you fail, will you turn again and face the upside-down kingdom that Jesus has proclaimed? So how is this possible? How do we gain the strength to do it again and again? So the truth is, for me, I find myself, even today, at a moment, Crying out in my weakness to God. Over these last few weeks, uh, my wife and I we've been tested, we've been tried through various challenges at work and at home. A few months ago, I was telling somebody, "Hey, you know, I'm really convinced. I'm really convinced by the tenets of Christian nonviolence." And then the election happened, and then Charlottesville happened, and then four weeks ago, three weeks ago, three weeks ago now. Somebody broke into our house and tried to take our TV, and that episode ended with me running through the streets, chasing him, yelling, I'm going to rip your head off in my underwear. (laughs) We got the TV back. Um, Yeah, that was not a day for Christian (laughs) nonviolence. These are just some of the challenges that we face. We're mentoring a young woman who, if she graduates high school this year, she will finish the year, and this is true for me, and I'm going to assume that it's true for basically all of you. She will not have taken a math and science course in high school that I didn't take in middle school. She's going to graduate. Somehow They're going to graduate her, having only taken algebra one, having only taken earth science. And, and, and as we look back over the path that we've taken, we're wondering, where did we fail? Where did we miss the mark on this? And as we look ahead to the possibility that she might move in with us, we are filled with fear and with trembling. And we know that the days ahead are going to be marked again and again by helplessness and by failure. So as I close, I ask again for myself. How do we gain the strength to press in? How do I gain the strength to follow Jesus? How do I gain the strength to follow Him in this upside-down kingdom? Well, it's because of the simple truth. There's not just the rewriting of the story of the world. There's not just the rewriting of the story of an individual. Jesus ends by rewriting a third story, and it's the story of the Passover itself. You see, at this very night, after 1,500 years of the Jewish people celebrating this meal the same way, again and again and again, Jesus takes the story, and instead of reenacting it, he decides to rewrite it. He takes that 15-year-old under reenactment and he establishes a new meal. So that now every time we gather together and take the bread and take the cup, we are reminded that we have the chance through the power of the gospel to rewrite the story of our world, of our life. And in this meal that he is reenacting now, there's no land. Because Jesus is the lamp who is. This very night he will be taken, he will be taken, he will be stripped and beaten, put up on a cross, and three days later he will come back to life because Jesus is our ultimate Passover land. No more firstborn sons of Egypt have to die. No one else has to live in fear and failure and shame because Jesus is the firstborn son who willingly gives up his own life. Because Jesus is the Passover land not just who died but rose again we now have the power to persevere in a world filled with death and brokenness. Because Jesus, who was the greatest, who had every right and privilege as the Son of God, because he descended and made himself into a servant, even unto death, now we have the power to become the servants of all. Because Jesus is the ultimate Passover lamb, dying for us. Our sins that are just covered over, they are washed completely clean, they are completely forgiven. We're free from our sin and our failure and the shame that oppresses us and holds us in bondage. Because he is the Passover Lamb, a new world is being created and restored. And so, uh, as I close and invite the band back up, know as we go forward from this place, as we move into a time of worship, And as we think about the world that is ahead of us, know that the meal that we get to share in the services, that people are sharing all across the world, in homes and in villages, in every ethnicity, it's a meal of not just remembering the past, but looking forward to the future. Your story can be rewritten. The story of this campus can be rewritten. The story of your community can be rewritten. Jesus, the ultimate Passover lamb, as the power to redeem any person, any community, as the power to redeem and restore our entire world. And so, Father, as we come together in worship, as we look ahead for those of us who are students, the world beyond these walls, for those of us who are alumni, as we return and as we reflect on the journey that you have led us up to this point and the journey that's ahead of us, Father, for myself, ask to be reminded again and again that this story can be rewritten, that my life can be restored, that our communities can be restored and made Father, may we always return to you the ultimate Passover lamb who is rewriting our stories and bringing us out of death to life, bringing us out of bondage to freedom. your name,